You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very glad to have you along. And I have a question. Are you a manager or are you a movement starter? It's actually not my original question. It's the question Jennifer Dulski is asking the world this week as her new book hits the shelves and kindles everywhere. Jennifer is a leader. She's an entrepreneur with more than 18 years of experience in successful startups and big brand internet companies. Currently, she is head of something I'm sure so many of you already belong to. She's head of groups and community at Facebook. And before that, she served as president and COO at Change.org, a social enterprise company that empowers people everywhere to start and win campaigns for change. Her new book, is called Purposeful. Are you a manager or a movement starter? And it walks us through the steps that we all need to take to go from idea to impact, as well as learning the leadership skills necessary to rally people around a common cause. Jennifer, thanks so much for getting on the phone with me, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Jean. Great to be here. Can we start with what's probably a question you get asked all the time. What is your definition of purposeful? So to me, if you think about what you want the world to look like, I call it your desired future, that's the vision you have for the world. Purpose is why that vision matters to you. So I usually use stories to illustrate this point. And uh, a story I like to tell is about a woman named Kara Golden. She's the founder of Hintwater. It's now a $100 million plus business uh, creating flavored water that has no sugar. And Kara envisioned a world where people could have flavorful drinks, but without so much added sugar, a world where people would be healthier, where we'd have less obesity, et cetera. The reason it mattered to her personally, why it was her purpose, was because Kara herself struggled with these issues. She had had several children and was having trouble losing the weight and was concerned about her own health and realized that the reason why she was struggling with her health was because she was drinking too much diet soda and she needed a beverage that would meet her needs. And that became her personal purpose. Makes total sense. And let me just say, she did a really good job of it because the fridge in my house has plenty of watermelon and blackberry. That's right. And the way you can tell that Kara's purpose has turned into a movement that people follow is not only because they drink Hint water, but now Kara has actually launched Hint sunscreen. I don't know if you know about this. No. Scent from the fruits to scent the sunscreen and they make it without harmful chemicals. And the day that she launched the sunscreen, 60% of all the people who had ever bought Hint online also bought her sunscreen. And that's what a movement looks like. Well, what is the difference between a manager and a movement starter? So managers do their best with what they're given. 
and movement starters push to go beyond what's currently possible and they mobilize others alongside them when they do that. So I think of it as the difference between people who say, well, we're doing everything we can and people who say there has to be something more we can do. Do we have a choice? Are we born to be a manager or a movement starter? I mean, how are we constrained? I believe every manager has it in them to be a movement starter. What allows you to make that transition is first thinking bigger about what the world could look like, as I said, having that vision for your desired future. And the second thing is really courage. You know, all movements are started by individual people. And uh, I sometimes liken it to a standing ovation. The first person (laughs) who stands up and claps it, it sometimes takes courage to do that, to stand up in an audience full of people. But as soon as one person does it and a couple more people follow them, pretty soon the entire audience is standing up and clapping. And that's what it's like to start a movement. I think it's clear being a movement starter is something really aspirational. What about those people who sort of don't feel they have the bandwidth for it? Does, does the world still need managers too? Of course. I mean, managers are play a very important role. And especially in large organizations, one of the things that managers do is help guide people through their careers, help make sure things get done, etc. My view, though, is that it's possible to do both. And it's possible for each one of us to stand up and start a movement. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person who starts it has to be the one who also takes the leadership role all the way through. And one of the things I talk about in Purposeful is that often followers can become leaders. So for instance, there's a great story about a woman named Jennifer Cardenas who started a Facebook group after the wake of Hurricane Harvey. As she was evacuating with her family, she started a group to communicate with her friends and family about where everyone was going so they could stay in touch. And what happened is she went to dinner and all of a sudden there were 800 people who had requested to join the group. Wow. And she went to bed and there were 30,000 people in this group. And over the next few days, it grew to 150,000 people. And all of these people were helping each other in the wake of this massive natural disaster. And then Jennifer lost internet access. And so she could no longer serve as the leader of this community or this movement. And what happened is that 80 other people from all over the world who had joined this group stepped up to serve as moderators of the group. And together, working with the Coast Guard and other services, they were able to rescue 8,000 people during Hurricane Harvey, even without Jennifer's help. That is phenomenal and clear in terms of purpose. I mean, I wonder if some people have trouble putting a finger on exactly what their purpose is, on what inspires them. I mean, for a lot of, I would assume for many people, their purpose is, I want to take care of my family. I want to, it's not a big world Uber purpose. It might be a smaller purpose. Does That's that, true. does it matter? And how do you, how do you tap into what yours is? That's absolutely right. A purpose can be anything that matters to you, and it can be of any size. So I often talk about the fact that people 
start movements sometimes in their schools or their individual workplace or their neighborhood or in their church. It doesn't have to be something that's going to be changing a national law or building a multinational company. A movement is something that matters to you where you rally people behind a common purpose. And sometimes I give the example of um, the benefits that we now see in the workplace for uh, expectant mothers. Mm -hmm. Most of those changes came because individual people stood up and told their own stories and rallied people around them. So for instance, mothers who were pumping milk in the bathroom stall and willing to share how difficult that was. Or I personally have a story where I used to get stuck in my car because the parking spaces were so close together. When I was really pregnant, I couldn't open the door and actually fit out of my own car. Oh my gosh, I I remember that. And I'm flashing back to not being able to walk between tables at a restaurant because I was so pregnant. Right. Exactly. And so these are the things. People's willingness to share stories like these are what has led to mother's rooms and pregnancy parking. And each of these things were little mini movements that catch on nationally. How do you figure out if your idea or your purpose has the potential to make a big enough impact that you should follow it down the road? One of the things that great movement starters have is determination, because it is not always clear from the very beginning that movements will take off. And they do often take time and repeated action and so forth to get to really work. And so the one thing I would encourage people to do is not give up too soon. Uh, my, my kids had a great math teacher in elementary school who used to say, Math is not about getting the right answer. It's about learning how to master the struggle. And she would describe how great mathematicians will work on the same problem for multiple years at a time until they actually are able to come to a solution. And each step teaches them something about what might work and what might not work. And movements are similar. Uh, having a purpose really matters. And sometimes the first few steps you take towards that purpose will work wonders, and sometimes they won't. And being willing to track their progress is what makes the difference. It sounds a lot like running a marathon or any other big goal where you are benchmarking your way there because some of the things you might try don't work and some of the things that you try are amazingly powerful and you almost have to feel your way to success. That's right. It is like running a marathon. And I talk a bit about failure in the book. And one of my favorite quotes comes from Mary Pickford, who says, this thing we call failure is not the falling down, but the staying down. And so people who can continue to get back up are the people who are most likely to be successful at this. And I think the key part of it is also pacing. So like a marathon, understanding that it will take time is important. And I also talk about the importance of having some sprints. Uh, I was a coxswain on the crew team, and there is a technique in rowing they call a power 10, which is when rowers are already rowing really hard during a given race, and they actually call 10 strokes where they put their absolute maximum effort and what I have seen to be most effective in leadership of movements is people who understand that it's a long haul 
and can take some sprints at key times around things like preparing for a particular meeting or persuading a particular decision maker. I love that. If you're trying to start a movement and you need some financial backing, do you have any suggestions for how to find it? Sure. So as I said before, the person who starts a movement is like that person who is the first to stand up and clap. And I think of them sort of as spark for the fire. And movements really take off when you get your first supporters, like the kindling for your fire. And sometimes that's just people following you, but sometimes it is financial support that you need. And so the key advice I give to people is just not to be afraid to ask. If you have that clear vision and clear purpose that you know is exciting to people, Sometimes you just have to get out, out there and not be afraid, even if it means asking people for money. So I give the example sometimes of Megan Grassel. She was a teenager who went bra shopping with her 13-year-old sister, and all she could find were sexy push-up lace bras, which she didn't feel were appropriate for her you know, young tween, early teen sister. And so she decided to start her own company called Yellowberry to make age-appropriate bras for young girls. And she needed money to start this organization. And so what she did was what many movement starters and entrepreneurs do is she started a Kickstarter campaign, Mm -hmm. but she couldn't really get it funded. And in the first few weeks, she only had $200 on the campaign, which was, I think, pretty embarrassing for her because all of her friends at school were seeing this and she was quite worried about it. But Megan did not give up and she reached out to a whole variety of influencers that she could find, people who were blogging in this space, people who had Facebook groups about this, and she told them all about her mission. And I think she reached out to about 200 people. One of them said yes, and that was all it took, just one person. It was a woman who runs a community and a blog called A Mighty Girl. And she posted about Yellowberry, and in one day, Megan's campaign Uh, was funded at the $25,000 level, which is what she needed to kick off this company. So really, it just takes getting out there, being determined, and reaching out to people to ask for their help. It's a fabulous example. And I want to talk a little bit more about failure and also about criticism. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments and that no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you are single or married or divorced, or embarking on a new purpose, it's vital for all women to be actively engaged in their finances and investments before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you owe, know what your goals are, and try to have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's being in your financial front seat. You can learn more about that at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be back with Jennifer Dulski, author of the new book, Purposeful, which is out this week. So you say when it comes to criticism, don't drink the haterade. I love that, but explain it. That's right. So I really believe that criticism falls in two key buckets. The first is people who criticize you for who you are, your appearance, your gender, other things. Those people are generally haters, or some some people call them trolls. And it's often best to set aside that type of criticism that's coming because of who you are and those types of things you can't change. 
Other feedback, though, criticism, even when presented less than gently about what you're doing or how you're doing it can actually be really helpful feedback. And so, as I say, it's possible to use criticism to your advantage. And there are great stories about this in Purposeful. One of them that I love is from a woman named Mary Lou Jepson. And she does something I call leveraging the naysayers. So Mary Lou has run uh, major tech teams at uh, Facebook, at Google, and other places. But before that, earlier in her career, she built an organization called One Laptop Per Child, uh, which was about getting a very inexpensive solar-powered laptop into the hands of children around the world. And there were a lot of people who really thought she couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And Mary Lou tells a story about going into a meeting with a group of tech executives at a big company in Asia. And after telling them about her plan, they said, we have 23 reasons why we believe this will not work. And instead of getting discouraged, she said, great, let's go through the 23 reasons. And she went through, listened to all of them. And at the end, she said, well, I have answers to 17 of those things. How about I go back with my team, we try to answer the rest of them, and we'll come back to you again. And if there are more things you think we can't do, you can tell us. And it turns out these highly critical people ended up being the main source of debugging her own product. And their feedback was extremely valuable. And Mary Lou says she really might not have been able to build this product as successfully without their help. It's amazing what good criticism can actually do for you. I was with Beth Comstock, who was the vice chair at GE for many, many years. And had the opportunity to interview her last week, and she said she tries to surround herself with people who will tell her the things, give her the feedback that she doesn't want to hear, that you need that kind of open, honest assessment from people, or you are never going to make the kind of progress you could make otherwise. I agree completely. The The analogy I use here is about professional athletes. And when you think about it, even the best athletes in the world still have coaches. They have someone who says, you know, your swing is a little off today or your knee is bent too much or whatever that thing may be. And if we see ourselves as people who want to be better at something or even the best in the world at something, we all need coaches. And that means we need to be open-minded to taking their feedback and even criticism. Before we wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about your job at Facebook. You're currently the head of groups and the head of community. Tell me a little bit about groups. Why are groups important? So groups are important because they provide people a sense of connection and belonging. And we see groups come together on Facebook about all the most important things in our lives, our families, our health, our neighborhoods, our work, our money, uh, and all of the causes that are important to us. And it's really more important today than it has been ever before because we see loneliness on the rise. And there's actually a lot of research now that shows that loneliness is more deadly than obesity. Mm -hmm. It's actually equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So if we can think about groups as a way to help people be less lonely and to come together with others uh, with whom they have something in common, it's a really big benefit for the world. 
So we are starting a private Facebook group for her money. I would love to get your advice as we put our MO together for a successful group. What's the DNA of a successful group on Facebook? What tips would you give us? So the most important thing to set up a Facebook group or really any community for success is to have one or more people who see themselves as leaders of the group and are there to help create it and nurture it so that it is successful. I was talking with Katerina Fake, who's the founder of Flickr, and she describes to me a great community leader as similar to the host of a cocktail party. She says, when you invite people over, you know, the first thing you do is make sure the environment is good, that you introduce people to each other, you take their coat, you get them a drink. Running a community is very similar. You want to really think of caring and nurturing for people when they come, to introducing them to other members and to creating content and an engaging experience that will make them want to be there. And then once you do that, then these most successful communities really take on a life of their own. And as I said before, in the example we saw with Hurricane Harvey, oftentimes members of the group step up and become leaders on their own. What are your favorite groups? Are you allowed to say, or are they all like favorite children? I mean, it is like your children. I, I won't say I have a favorite, but what I will say is two things. One is what amazes me is there really is a group for everyone and everything. So you know, there, as I said before, they're on, you know, parenting and, and health and so forth, but also any sort of passion area you can imagine. So things like, uh, one of my favorite examples is called the very old skateboarders, which is a group (laughs) of women in their sixties and seventies who all love to skateboard. And, you know, they all thought they were alone until they found each other. And there are groups like that on just about anything you can imagine. And, The other thing I will say is that I, you know, each person, we believe that each person should find a meaningful community. That's the the mission of my team is to help a billion people find a meaningful community. And I found my own meaningful community on Facebook in a group called Grown and Flown Parents, which is for parents of kids ages 15 to 25. So I have two teenage daughters and, you know, this is a group full of parents from all over the world talking about how to be a good parent to kids of that age, and then doing amazing things like bringing each other's children chicken soup in their college dorms, even you know when they're far away from their own kids. So it's pretty amazing the things that you see happening in these communities. Well, my kids are 20 and 23, so I'm going to check that one out because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just want to bring somebody chicken soup, even if your own kids are halfway across the country. That's right. Jennifer Dolsky, thank you so much. The book is called Purposeful. It is out this week. It's a great read, but we also have the opportunity to give away a couple to our listeners. Thank you for that, Jennifer. And so if that's something that you're interested in, you want one of the hot off the press copies, drop us a note at jeanchatsky.com, you know where, and tell us why you want it. Jennifer, thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hello. Hi, everyone. So I'm not big on shameless plugging (laughs) um, during an interview, but I feel like I should shamelessly plug now because we just finished this interview with the woman who runs Facebook groups. And we have a group. Yes, we have a group for her money, but it's private. 
And that means we will have to grant people access to start. And we want many of the first group members to be our listeners, of course. And the way to get on the list or in the group, I mean, to get access granted Mm -hmm. is to send us an email. Yes, to send us an email. We're still in development of it and creating all of our fun new content for you guys for the group. So right now, if you could just send me a note through the same question box you ask your questions at jeanchatsky.com slash podcast, say you want to be on the invite list, and then we will automatically add you to it. And then once we get the group ready to go, people will be able to go to it and just grant or request access. And be in. And be in. But it's not going to take long. We're, no, we're motoring. We're moving. We are mo- we're moving. We are, we are on a roll. We're moving. But just in case you like do this right after you listen to the show this morning, this is the best way to get in touch with us for getting into that group. Okay. And while you're at jeanchatsky.com, you should sign up for the newsletter. You should. We're also going to have a Her Money newsletter coming soon. So lots of exciting things. Very exciting things. And you can look out for additional content, Facebook live shows, special interviews, real-time talk with us, and we can answer more of your questions. This is a big reason why we're doing this. We have a ton of questions. So many, and we're so grateful for them, but just how we have the offerings that we have now, we're not able to get to as many as we'd like. So this will be a solution to that amazing problem. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to interact with people more. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So please let me know if you want in. Send us an email and I will add you to the list immediately. Sounds good. And let's dive into some questions. Our first question is from Missy. I'm writing because my boyfriend and I are talking about buying a house together. We both have our own homes at the moment. Marriage, kids, likely IVF, and finances, finances, and more finances. We are both 40, so pretty established in our careers and our ways. I would love to hear more about merging finances. I've heard you say you're an advocate for separate bank accounts plus one for the house, but we still don't know where to begin. I think you could do a whole show on this one. I think I probably could do a whole mm-hmm. show on this one. We should just put that on the list right now. Adding Missy, it. thank you for that idea. So I think that in terms of the list of things you laid out, marriage, IVF, buying a house together, having, first of all, transparency about finances and what it looks like and what you're both contributing to the household pot, I think, becomes really important. Once you become an us, I think everything about the other person's finances should be known, and preferably before you become an us. The way my husband and I do it is with yours, mine, and ours accounts. And We did it this way initially because we brought a lot of individual responsibilities to the marriage. So when we got married, I had kids from my previous marriage. He had kids from his previous marriage. We both had things we had to pay for that we didn't feel like the other person needed to pay for. And so initially, we just set it up with yours and mine. We didn't even have the hours. But... As we started to layer on some of the things like you are talking about, like we bought a house together and we were traveling together and we were saving for shared goals, it became easier and 
I kind of felt more romantic to sort of have a place to do it together where we could track our progress together. And so we have just always contributed a proportionate share of our incomes to the household account. Um, I kick in the same percentage of my income that he kicks in of his. And the other thing that this does is buys a little bit of autonomy for each of us. I spend more on certain items than he would even ever dream of spending on those items. <laughs> you know, I'm talking what about... What are you referring to? <laughs> I'm talking about the occasional handbag. Yep. I'm talking about shoes. Mm-hmm. Although he does spend a decent amount of money on shoes because he has complicated feet. But but, <laughs> but he, also, he also has more shirts than any man on the planet. He just he has, <laughs> He's a well-dressed guy. He is a well-dressed guy. He spent many years at GQ magazine. Um, he has a lot of shirts. He has more shirts than I have. <laughs> and, you know, am I going to tell him that he doesn't need any more shirts? Like, no. He wants shirts. Shirts make him happy. Let him buy shirts. Yeah. Right? But I don't want to ask permission when I go out and I spend money on something that, A, I want, and B, doesn't eat into our shared goals for the future, our shared savings goals or spending goals. I don't want to, um, I don't want him asking me permission. That gets really weirdly parental. And I don't want that in my relationship. So I think that's sort of where I would start. I would start with transparency about what you guys have together. I would start with looking at the costs of some of these things and when you want them and assign numbers to them and realize if you do go down the road of purchasing anything substantial, whether it's a car or a house, without being married, you need an agreement that lays out ownership and you need a lawyer. Boom. We'll do one more from Melissa. I'm 29 and I'm working at a job I love. I have a Roth IRA and a state pension. In four years when my pension is vested, I want to work independently as I know with my specialty I can make a great deal more money and have more flexibility with my hours. The problem is that I have a disability. I have a rare neurological disorder and the medications are impossibly expensive. How do I prepare myself financially to burden the cost of my health care once I step out on my own? Ooh. Well, I would start shopping around for health insurance now. Um, I know you're already covered under your workplace plan. At least it sounds like you're covered under your workplace plan. But I don't know how to answer the question about what the burden is likely to be because I don't know what you're looking at in terms of health care premiums, co-pays, et cetera. And I don't think you will know until you know what that burden looks like. And then I would ask yourself how many years it looks like you will have to carry that burden and what sort of insurance policy provides the best solution. So it may be as you evaluate paying lower premiums for a high deductible plan versus higher premiums for a plan that covers more things, you're going to find that you're better off with the latter. But I would actually just go through the process of shopping as if you were really doing it now and then start banking enough money to get you to 
retirement, essentially, or Medicare. The other thing that I would, though, ask yourself is, what's the differential? So you said you can make a lot more money by going out and doing it on your own. Compare that lot more money to the cost of health care and then see where it shakes out. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And in that, there's disability insurance, too, Absolutely. Right? So disability insurance is for when you can't work. It sounds like she can work. It's just that she'll have very high medical bills for this disability. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're working with this disability right now and that you believe that you'll be able to continue to work with this disability, but not be able to afford the cost of health care or that the cost of health care will just get more and more and more expensive. Disability insurance, in addition, may be something that's difficult to qualify for. The one thing that I would do is look to see if you can qualify for a group plan with your current employer and if it's possible when you leave that employer to buy the continuation of that disability policy without a physical. And that may be possible. Some some of those plans are portable. There are long-term care policies where you might be able to do the same thing. And if you feel like you need it for whatever reason, life insurance policies where you get in as part of a group plan and you can continue without a physical. And I would absolutely look into any and all of those. The last thing that I would say is ask your employer Um, And you can do this without talking to your immediate supervisor. You can just ask the benefits department, what's the cost of COBRA? Because you can continue your current health insurance for 18 months, and that may be cheaper than buying it on your own. And then could she hypothetically do this? So let's say if she gets on one of those plans and she does have disability insurance or a long-term care plan with that coverage you just talked about, if you know, God forbid she wasn't able to work, could that insurance kick in and help her cover the health insurance costs that she might be incurring while she's not working? Is it like just extra protection over that? Yeah. Disability insurance or long-term care insurance is for when you can't work at all. I don't don't know enough about this disability. I'm really sorry, by the way, that you have to make this decision with this in mind. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to also say like, so many people are now making this decision with health care in mind, and I just think it's a shame. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Melissa, and please let us know if you have any follow-up questions yeah. because that is a tricky one. And please let us know how it goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, Melissa, if you find yourself sort of lost and unsure of where to look for options, just get back in touch and we will try to find some for you. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much, Kelly. And now it's time to turn a corner for our weekly Thrive segment. I have a question. Alexa, what credit card should I get? And yes, that is the same Alexa who will tell you a joke or read you the headlines or help you make a shopping list. That same Alexa will point you in the direction of the best credit card for you. NerdWallet has a new Alexa skill that will run you through a series of questions about your spending habits, your credit score range, what rewards you're interested in, and Alexa will then suggest the best card for you. Sounds cool, right? But 
Be wary when answering personal questions. Although NerdWallet's skill doesn't access your personal financial information and isn't linked to any of your financial accounts, it's still wise to be sensitive to what information you're feeding your virtual assistant. Make sure the Wi-Fi network it's connected to is secure and never ask her or any other virtual assistants to remember sensitive information like your passwords or credit card numbers. And speaking of Alexa skills, since this seems to be the show of shameless plugging, her money has one too. We now have an Alexa skill, which means you can listen to the podcast on Alexa. To get going, click the link in this week's show description. Click enable on the page you're taken to, and you'll be able to listen immediately. All you need to do is say, Alexa, open her money radio. But don't forget to enable the skill first. We are trying to spread the word about this. So if you like what you hear, please rate our skill. We are told ratings on skills really important. And also write us a short review. If you do, send us a note where you ask your questions, and Kelly will add you to the invite list for her money's private Facebook group. And thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jennifer Dulski for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We really do like hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with a woman who has no filters, life coach Lauren Handel-Zander. We'll talk soon. 